Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, today, to round out our series on role overload, we are excited to be really drilling down into systemic solutions. Already, we've talked to experts like Tiffany Dufu about the challenges around working motherhood, Liz O'Donnell when it comes to being a working daughter, and Julia Carpenter all about how, guess what? Single women want work-life balance too. Today, I'm really excited to bust down this myth that role overload is a personal problem. It's not a personal problem. You can't life hack your way out of burnout culture, right? We exist in a country and in a workplace culture where the norm is overwhelm. Absolutely. Perhaps it would be possible to break your own self out of burnout culture if you lived in a vacuum and didn't live in society. But I don't think any of us is in that situation. We live in the world. We work in workplaces. Everyone has a role in beating this thing together and figuring it out. I think so often on this show, we're championing how a lot of these issues we bring up actually have policy and government solutions. And so I'm so excited to talk through what that can look like today. Exactly. And I have to point out my own bias here because I make a living at Bossed Up talking through personal solutions to our burnout culture and really saying like, okay, we operate in systems of oppression that without systemic change and policy change and organizational change will hold us back. But here's what you can do about it right now. I like to say, you know, we got to play the cards we've been dealt while we change the game. But I never go into those conversations or even those sort of programs that I run pretending like we can solve this on our own. It's one thing to say, play the cards you've been dealt while we change the game. Today, we're talking about what it looks like to change the game. We're talking with the one and only Bridget Schulte, author of a phenomenal, heady, historical, contextual book called Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time, which really brings her journalistic experience to light. When you read her book, you can tell it was written by a boss journalist because Bridget Schulte was with the Washington Post for almost 20 years. Um, and she really brings that kind of rigor to this particular book, which walks through a historical context of how the hell we got here as a country, how overwhelmed became the norm and what we can do about it. And now she is the director of the Better Life Lab with our pal, Anne-Marie Slaughter, friend of the show, who we're big fans of, at New America, the think tank here in D.C. The Better Life Lab, which aims to find and highlight solutions to a better way of working, to better define gender equity to include both the advancement of women and the changing role of men, and to pursue policy solutions that better fit the way people and families work and live to enable all people to thrive. I love that so much because it doesn't just pigeonhole this as a women's issue. Exactly. It really highlights the fact that all of us, men, women, and everyone in between, has a role to play, as do bosses, governments, policymakers, advocates. We're all in this together. Exactly. I'm a huge fan of this context that Anne-Marie Slaughter really introduced in her book, Unfinished Business, in which she talks about caregiving and breadwinning as equally important components that make our society work. So how do we deal with that? And the Better Life Lab, led by Bridget Schulte, Another accomplished, amazing journalist, author, overall badass. Like, they've brought these two powerhouses together to come up with real policy solutions. And we are so 
honored to have you joining us here today, Bridget. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I first came across your work with the fabulous New York Times bestseller book of yours, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. And in it, I really appreciated the historical context you gave into how we got to where we are as this hyper-connected, always-on, overwhelmed work culture that feels very American. (laughs) Right. (laughs) American exceptionalism in the least awesome way. (laughs) My question for you is, how unique is the overwhelm work culture here in the United States as opposed to elsewhere? Well, I think this is a really important question. You know, it's clearly (laughs) talking about American exceptionalism. It is something that we pioneered here, this sense that the ideal worker always works and is always on and always available and that they're the best workers and that burnout is almost a badge of honor, you know, and that you see that in all sorts of fields that, you know, I've written about uh, the medical profession and, you know, you talk to some doctors and they'll be like, yeah, we have this Iron Man culture, you know, that you're going to, you're going to run a marathon and then you're going to swim to a couple miles and you're going to bike forever. And, and yet then you look at the flip side of that and one out of every two doctors in the United States is showing at least one symptom of burnout. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not somebody I want to be like operating on me or, you know, delivering a baby or doing brain surgery or trying to figure out what that tumor means. So there are some real costs to this sense of always being on and valuing that. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you look at other countries, it's interesting. People say, well, it's all technology. Technology has sped things up, and that's the, really the culprit. And it really isn't, because when you look at what happened in the United States, we began to really value and reward long hours in about the 1980s. So that was long before we had iPhones and, you know, uh, people were, were searching the Internet at all times. So this is really a trend that started before technology. And technology has only uh, increased and, and sort of added to it and, and sort of <laughs> sent us all into this kind of like overdrive spiral. But I think where we really need to look is that, uh, you know, the way that we work could be imported into other uh, into other economies. Uh, you know, America, the United States is very powerful culturally, um, you know, and this is sort of we like to say that, you know, we're the best, right? The, America the best first. economy and everybody should work like this. America first. Oh right. my God. Yeah. America first. <laughs> so, so, I mean, there is some danger that, um, you know, that this always on culture, you know, added to technology will be exported. There are certainly some signs of that in, in certain places. And yet on the flip side of that, what's very interesting is that when you look at productivity data, you know, and again, not just sort of like the nice to have soft, squishy anecdotal stories, but really hard data about productivity. And you look at hourly productivity. So the United States, we work really long hours, and that's where a lot of our productivity comes from. But if you look at productivity per hour's work, so how good are each one of those hours, we're actually not in top, in the top rungs. The the countries that are most productive per hour are countries like Norway. And what's fascinating about that is that uh, you know, the countries that work even longer than the United States, uh, the two countries that work longer hours are Japan and South Korea. They are actually the least productive per hour of all the, uh, of, you know, sort of all the advanced economies, uh, by in different measures, uh, 
ILO and OECD have measured, have done these international measurements. And I think what's interesting in some of my reporting, when you go to countries that are incredibly productive per hour and yet do not work long hours, it's because their culture is very different. And they don't value long work hours in the way that we do in the United States. They don't see that as a badge of honor. And instead, what's fascinating is they see it as a sign of inefficiency. And the question is, you know, you know, in the United States, if you say, oh, I worked so late last night or I spent the night at my desk or I was answering emails till one in the morning, there's this sort of, aren't I amazing? Aren't I dedicated? You know, and there's this kind of like pat on the back that you get. But if you if you make those kinds of comments in countries like Norway or Denmark or, or some of the other places that are as productive per hour as the United States, but work 37.5 hours a week, um, they'll say like, well, what's wrong with you? Why couldn't you get your work done on time? Yeah. So the culture is very different. I wonder, Bridget, do you feel like this is different for millennials at all? Because this whole idea of working smarter, not harder, seems to me this like trope I see in millennial culture. See, I almost think it's the opposite. I think that a lot of millennials, because we came up in times where you had to kind of struggle to find a job, I actually see a lot of people my same age really giving too much of themselves to their work and kind of getting caught up in this culture of overwork and burnout. Yeah. And I, I almost have seen the opposite where I think it's because we sort of had to find jobs in this tricky, you know, climate, we say like, oh, I'll be on email at all times. Right. Oh, I'll, you know, push myself. I'll never work from home, blah, 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 because we feel like we have to. I think when it comes to millennials, folks who I see kind of being smarter and saying, no, I'll only take a job where I can re work remotely. I'll only take a job that's more flexible. Those are the ones that I feel like ha are a lot happier. Yeah. I used to really chafe at what I felt were arbitrary standards for professionalism, like being in the office at a certain hour and staying until a certain hour. I, I really rebelled as a young professional, graduating into the recession, being held to these standards of just, you know, this person next to me is rewarded just for being at their desk, despite the fact that I achieved everything he achieved today in the first hour of being present at work. And I, I really could not last in a workplace that was like that. I was so vehemently opposed to, to presence over efficiency. Well, along those lines, in terms of presence over performance, that really is what the American culture, the work culture values right now. And in a large part, it's because it's really difficult. We have not figured out how to measure knowledge work. When is knowledge work good work? Um, you know, and that's something that, um, you know, management consultants were warning about, you know, uh, back in the 70s when they were, you know, uh, thinking about, oh, we're moving into this knowledge work culture. Well, what does that mean when you don't have a nine to five job or you don't have the whistle going off and you haven't hit your targets for a number of widgets? And it's something that, you know, even as uh, just a few years ago, there's a big study that said we haven't figured this out still. So because we don't know how to value and judge knowledge work? When is it good enough? When are you done? Um, you know, then we we default to the old way of measuring good performance, which is simply being there, being a butt in the chair. And so part of what's going on is that we're at this real pivot point where we've kind of got these clashing old and new cultures. And it's it's really driving all of us crazy. And I would say it is also driving millennials crazy. So there's a couple things about millennials that the surveys show that they really, what they want in time for work, 
that's great, but also and meaningful, but also time for their life. You know, it's not that unusual. <laughs> it's exactly what Gen X has wanted. It's exactly what baby boomers had wanted. The difference, what the survey shows, the difference is that millennials are willing to ask for it. And they're willing to walk away if they don't get it. So <laughs> that, that, that said, <laughs> you know, so, so, so there, there are differences there in terms of, of sort of an expectation, if you will, that work doesn't have to be nuts, that you can work smart, you know, that you don't have to just do what people have always done just because they've always done it, which I think is healthy. But at the same time, you're absolutely right that, uh, there is a disconnect between the the willingness to to walk away and the sort of um, you know the belief in the importance of having work life balance and on the other hand working in cultures and getting sucked into them and wanting to succeed and seeing that the only way to do it is to work like a maniac so in some of the work that I've been doing it's really clear and it's more painful to be a millennial who overworks because you're expected to be a slacker and so if you're working all of these crazy hours and really, really living up to these ideal worker notions. Um, and you also feel like you're sort of betraying your own principles and your own beliefs. And uh, so it's actually a very painful thing for many millennials. And they're really caught up in it. And it, I think it's um, hopefully out of that pain, something good will come. Well, that's something I found so fascinating that resonated throughout your piece for Fast Company called Why Your Best Life Hacks Still Come Up Short. This idea that not only do we have these work products that are visible, right? If your boss sends an all staff email at 10 o'clock and you respond at 10.05 at night, people can see that and they make conclusions about what kind of employee you are and how much you care about your job. As an employee, you naturally want to reflect your boss's, you know, care about the job that you guys are doing together. And so you may feel obligated to, to respond to that email right away. But when you do that, it actually sets up this cycle wherein you are now expect, like that's the expectation that you are setting. And so it's just like what you said. It's this cultural thing where you become a cog in it. You get pulled into it and you don't want to be that person who was saying, wait, this is dumb. We could be working better if we were all at home or like we could be working better if we didn't have 10 meetings a day. We could be working better if we just got our work done during the day and didn't spend the evening time, you know, collaborating over emails and just, you know, staying up at night. We could be working more efficiently. It doesn't actually yes. feel like that is something that is rewarded. And I think it's because, you know, you see the person who's hit send on that email. You see the person whose butt is in the chair at 730 in the morning and is there till nine o'clock at night. Those are all the work products that are visible and concrete and tangible. And the other things you might not see at all. So in Emily's example, where she did all of the things that her deskmate did, you know, from home before she even got there or whatever, people can't see that. All they know is it's getting done, but right. people can see him sitting in his chair. Right. Exactly. Well, and that was the funny thing, that piece, you know, uh, because it was sort of a, a, about, you know, really solving this is bigger than you, all the life hacks in the world. I mean, they're great life hacks and you can be more productive and there are certain things that you can do. But to answer this question, it is not all up to you. And I have to say, I don't think this was one of the more popular pieces on Fast Company because <laughs> everybody wants like the, the they want the life hack and they want it to be easy. And it's not easy because we are we human beings are social creatures and we are driven to conform to the social norm. And right now, if you work in a place where the social norm is that it values overwork, 
you know, it, you are just wired to want to fit in and want to, to perform and, and go sort of quote unquote above and beyond. And so that's why it's so important for leaders, middle managers and leaders to not only, uh, you know, talk the talk, but walk the walk. And I have to be perfectly honest. I came from a, you know, I've been, I, I call myself a recovering workaholic and, you know, I was in daily newspapers for most of my career. And then when I left and I came to New America where I'm directing the, <laughs> the better life lab, right? Our whole job is to try to make work and life better for people. Um, and I was sending those emails late at night and because I would have an idea. It's like, oh, this is a great idea. I want to share this with the team. Oh, this is so exciting. I need to get it out of my head and I got to clear it. And then, you know, I was only thinking of myself. And what I was not realizing is that when I sent out that email, just as you described, I was actually creating stress and cognitive load on my team because they had to decide, well, she says that we don't have to answer emails at night, but she's the boss. And well, should we? And we want to make sure that she thinks that we're doing a good job and we all are dedicated and we're passionate about this, too. And do I need to answer this? And even going through the anticipation of A, was I going to send an email? B, did they, ha they had to like spend time thinking about whether to respond to it? That takes up cognitive bandwidth. That actually takes you out of the moment. It puts your brain in this kind of vigilant mode. And there's actually research that shows that we are more stressed out by anticipating <laughs> late night emails from our boss and actually getting them. And so I have to say, I have a great team and they took my laptop from me the next day and they installed Boomerang and they said, we understand you need to get these ideas out of your head because then, you know, then your mind is clear, but don't send it to us, you know, when we want our minds to be thinking about something else. And so now I am trying, I try to be very careful and I'm not perfect yet. You know, that's why I say I'm in the recovery mode. But uh, now I try to, if I get something, I have an idea, I want to get it out of my head. I schedule it. I send it out, but I, but I, you know, I, I, I get it out of my head, but I schedule it so it'll go out during work hours. Um, and I think that just even small little nudges like that can make a big difference because now my team knows when they leave work, they are really off, you know, and most of us are not firefighters. Most of us are not ER doctors, you know, most knowledge workers, the world is not going to fall apart and nobody's going to die if we don't answer the email that evening. And yet we all have this kind of like <gasps> breathless feeling that that somehow we're so important and our job is so amazing that we can't not do it. And yet once you once you start creating those boundaries and once you start creating more space for other things in your life, the irony is your work actually gets better because you're fresher, because you're able to make more connections, because you're not so burned out and just constantly in this like powering through slogging mode like you know so many people are i mean it just blows my mind that the gallup polls every year show that like close to 80 to 90 percent of american workers say they're disengaged at work you know that is not the kind of workforce the, that's not the kind of human capital that's going to get you you know the, the the latest and greatest and coolest innovation or efficiency I'm so glad that you brought up the point about you like working in news. You know, I'm a former journalist in a 24-hour news cycle. Now I work in politics. And I think, just like you were saying, there's this temptation to believe, oh, my God, if I don't answer this email right away, the world is going to end. Something's going to happen. It's going to be a crisis. In reality, most times, that's not the case. We've just internalized that that's the case. I almost feel like it's this weird kind of narcissism that we're so important. Heaven forbid we not be on email for five minutes. But I also know that 
working in journalism and working in media and working in politics, there are going to be times where there is legitimately a crisis where you have to get out of bed and answer that email. But not everything is that crisis. And so if it's kind of like that boy who cried wolf thing, where if we treat every email like it's urgent, if we treat everything like it's a it's an emergency that you have to answer right away, no matter what time it is, when that critical thing does happen where you need to be on all cylinders, either A, you're not going to take it seriously because everything's a crisis, and when everything's a crisis, nothing's a crisis, or B, you're going to be so tired having dealt with that last crisis that wasn't really a crisis that you're not going to be able to really be on all cylinders to actually deal with it in an efficient way. Yeah, that is so true. That's so true. <laughs> so true. And I I feel like this is such a meta conversation for me because I, like you, Bridget, I love a good life hack. And, you know, I obviously see the systemic forces at play, but I also, you know, play into millennials' desire to advocate and ask for more and help them get the sustainability that they're craving in my line of work. But internally at Bossed Up, we onboard our staff members with a clear set of norms for when we expect work happening and when we expect work to not be happening. And I regularly have to tell my team members who are enthusiastic and excited. I just had a conversation with my staff member, Emmy, last Friday, who said, OK, I'll get this draft to you over the weekend. I said, Emmy, no, you will not. And she went on a camping trip. I was like, do not get me a draft of this over the weekend. For us, what's really been helpful is deciphering between what is important and versus what is urgent and really understanding those two differences. Yeah, that's really important. I, I think the other thing to remember, um, you know, there's been really interesting research on productivity and, you know, how how can you really push yourself? And just like you say, the research shows that you really can push yourself, you know, if you've got a deadline or there's some emergency, you know, but really for a short, finite period of time, you know, for really no more than a couple of weeks. And then after that, you're your performance really starts to degrade. And it, uh, you know, over the, over the course of maybe uh, six weeks, you really would have been much better off if you just kept working at a reasonable pace. You know, at six weeks, you know, you are so burned out that you've actually lost any of those productivity gains from, from pushing yourself so hard for a couple of weeks. So there really is sort of a cliff you can fall off. So yes, you can push yourself. There's always going to be some kind of emergency and you do, you know, and people will need to be all hands on deck, but it is not every single night. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's continue the conversation around what companies and organizations can do to make life and work better and more efficient for all of us. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We're back and we are sitting down with the incredible author, think tank, director of the Better Life Lab at New America, Bridget Schultze. Bridget, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So we've been talking about what you've done as a boss, what I've done at my company, and what we as Americans really desire when it comes to sustainability and efficiency at work, whether you're a millennial or not. So what can these employers, because we know more and more employers are getting on board, at least in name, with this concept of sustainability and efficiency? Because we know, right, happier, healthier employees are better for the bottom line. So how can companies make role overload easier for all of us? 
Well, I guess the first thing I would say is I'm not sure that companies are really convinced yeah. <laughs> that having happier and healthier employees is better for the bottom line. There's plenty of reports that show that that's true. There's plenty of studies that show that having more women in leadership and management actually makes your, you know, boost the performance in the bottom line. And yet look at where we are. We're really stuck. We're stuck in people overworking. We're stuck and women being kind of stuck and trapped in middle management and only a few kind of, you know, clawing their way to the top. So I think that it's really important just to, to understand that while there is good data out there, I don't think it's really set, you know, I don't think it's sunk in. And that a big part of the reason why I've been doing a lot of, uh, of work with some behavioral scientists and really trying to understand uh, more human nature more. And, you know, change is really hard for human beings. Uh, we have something called status quo bias, where just because we're doing it and it's familiar, we tend to keep doing it. And I think that, that you know, it's it's uh, so apparent. You can <laughs> you look at that in, in so many different uh, arenas and see that. So for workplaces, for organizations, for teams, uh, you know, even for individuals, it's really hard to break out of that status quo bias. Well, this is the way we've always done things and this is the way we should keep doing them. You know, even in the face of really good data that you should have more women in leadership, that you should have better work life balance, you know, that you will work better if you work smarter and you're not burning out all the time. So I think one of the things to do for for leaders is to think about the status quo as just one of a number of options that so that you kind of move it out of that. Well, this is the way we've always done it. In, and and so you almost think about it as scenario planning. It's like, OK, we could keep doing it this way. And then when you when you start putting the status quo against other models, you begin to see all of the costs you know, people say things like, oh, paid family leave, we can't do it, it's so expensive, it costs too much. And yet, if you put the the current reality as just one scenario, then what you have to do is start accounting for the costs of not doing it. You have to account for the costs of increased stress and attrition and turnover and, uh, you know, disengagement and unhappiness uh, and all of the things that you don't account for now because this is just the way that we've always done stuff. So I think that's the first thing is to recognize that change is hard and that we do have this status quo bias. And so that we almost have to think our, we have to design around that. And so, so some of the things that, that, uh, that we're suggesting companies do is really look at flexibility, but adopt it as something that's a default for everyone rather than think about it as an accommodation for a mother or a woman or a caregiver, because that just ends up creating such stigma and bias. And that's how you create the mommy track. And that when you realize that good work can be done, um, you know, you know, based more on people's biorhythms, if you will, uh, that you create flexibility that does not require a reason and that you open it up for men and women and it just becomes the way you work, that that goes a long way to creating systems that are fairer, creating lifestyles that are actually healthier and uh, creating work that's better uh, and also opening up possibility for much more gender equality, which is really stymied right now. Well, that was another aspect of your piece for Fast Company that I found so telling, this idea that oftentimes things like flexibility can become sort of gifts, quote unquote, that employers give to their employees, not something that actually makes everybody's job better and more efficient. This idea that, oh, if your boss lets you work remotely or gives you more flexibility or, you know, is more flexible with how you work best, 
they're doing you some kind of a favor. And I think it really is about cultural change where we understand that we are, as an organization, as a team, going to make choices about how we work best. And I also think it's really telling that I completely agree with you from what you said before, that I don't think all companies are moving toward this idea of happier employees makes, makes for better work. It's interesting because I've worked in some of the most progressive, cutting-edge organizations around, and they're still sort of caught up in this old-school notion of what it means to be a successful employee. These are organizations that, for any other choice they make, it's a data-driven choice. They look at evidence. They test things out. The worst thing you could say is, we do this because we've always done it. That's like a no-no to say in these organizations, yet... They will have that day and night when it comes to how they're planning a campaign, how they're rolling something out for a launch. When it comes to how they're working their own people and managing their own teams, it's, well, what are we going to do if the whole team isn't here for the meeting and people call in? Or how can we let people work remotely? How can we be flexible with people? It's like this weird way wherein they're so forward thinking and data driven and evidence based when it comes to how they're running their business. But when it comes to how they're running their teams, that all goes out the window. Yeah, that kind of cognitive dissonance I've heard of a lot. And I'm biased because I only work with companies that are coming to us because they are on board with this, at least philosophically, and want to know how to make it happen. So I don't know. I think tools like the New America's Better Work Toolkit that came out of the Better Life Lab are doing a great job of making the logical case for it. But like you said, Bridget, there needs to be an emotional case for it, or at least a financial case for diversity and leadership and sustainability in the workplace. Or an organization being able to justify just what Bridget was saying, why it's worth what it's going to cost to not invest in those things. If you can make the case for why it's worth wasting money to not invest in these things that we know are more efficient and going to be more efficient for your organization... Explain that, like make that case. But I think you'd have a really hard time doing so. Well, I think that part of what makes this difficult is that it's a belief. It's not based on data. It's not based on anything other than uh, like an article of faith. Well, I think that, you know, the best workers are the ones that are are most committed. And the way they show that is by always being here and always being on. So to tackle that, it does require data, but it requires more than data. You know, it requires sort of redesigning things. It's um, when you talk to design thinkers, they'll say sometimes it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. So part of what we did at the, with the Better Work Toolkit, we were working on a project on the science of work-life balance and health with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Ideas42. Um, they're a nonprofit of behavioral scientists trying to use behavioral science to solve real-world problems. And we're looking at work-life conflict and overwork and trying to understand some of the behavioral science behind what drives it. And then how do you design solutions Again, how do you kind of nudge people into acting into a new way, which then might lead to a new way of thinking rather than trying to convince or persuade people and then try to get them to change some of their behaviors. So one of the things that we've done, we've gone into, um, we started with nonprofits and Ideas42 went in and did some kind of on the ground um um, interviewing, if you will. And I, uh, I've been doing, um, I'm kind of the storytelling partner. And so I've been doing a lot of reporting alongside that. And one of the things that we really focused on is like, well, what are the pain points at, at work organizations and really trying to get a handle of like, what's kind of where, what's driving some of that overwork and what are people really unhappy about? And that's where we came up with sort of the three things that a lot of companies and teams 
came up with to try to uh, to try to solve some of the questions around changing family structure and that how we didn't have the American wife at home anymore. And how did you how would the workplace respond to, um, you know, kind of changing family structure and changing workforce? And they came up with, well, let's be more flexible. Let's give workers more autonomy and then we'll collaborate more. You know, technology has brought so much more collaboration. And yet what we found is that there, these are kind of like new systems, but they've been layered onto legacy systems. So you have the new system of email, but it's layered onto this legacy system of meetings. And so, again, when I was talking about being at this pivot point, we are at this kind of crashing of old and new. And that's part of what we really uh, what we really uncover is, um, you know, how do you then just make an argument based purely on what you're experiencing or well, email overload. Well, what can you do about it? Well, how about you try some of these nudges? How about you try to make it more difficult to send an email after hours? You know, maybe you have like, you know, or you set a boomerang, so you schedule them, you know, or you, or you kind of like create more, um, uh, you know, you create more systems where it's easier to push people to take vacation. And that becomes part of the, the planning early on in the year, January and February, pick your time. And that you can always swap it. But a lot of the problem is, you know, because you've got these work cultures where you value all this overwork, you don't schedule your vacation. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, your calendar fills up and then it's June and you better take your vacation and your family's on your case. And why aren't you, why, you know, and then you look at your calendar and you're like, oh, my God, there's no way I can schedule it. Well, what if you designed something where you scheduled it in February when all of that time in July and August is totally white? It's white space. And so and then once you start taking vacation and then you plan for it, and you've anticipated it and you set up work systems where you know it and everybody else can, you know, they're they're ready for you to be gone. And so you don't have to worry about a last minute kind of panic. Uh, and then once you create that space for taking vacation, you know, part of the reason why people don't and they don't unplug is that we don't have a lot of practice doing it. And so that we we've lost we've, we've said like we can't remember why that time is important. And so if you create those kind of systems that make it more likely that you'll be able to unplug in the evening or that you'll take a weekend off or you'll actually have vacation so that you can truly recharge and experience that time, the better, you, you know, the more you do it, the more you realize how critical it is for not only joy, but also doing for, for doing good work, the, the more you practice you'll have. I got to jump in here because Bridget over here, Bridget Todd has this look on her face that makes me think that are you feeling personally called in on this particular front? I feel a little attacked right now. I'm not going to lie. Bridget, something to know about me is that I have not taken a vacation maybe since I was in maybe high school or honestly, it might have been like a college spring break trip. Uh, And we've had a little on-air conversation about Operation vacation. vacation. Bridget Todd edition. I do. I mean, I think it's Everything you said and so, so, so much more. I think it's part of the American sort of fetishization of hustle and drive and look at me, aren't I a martyr that I never take vacation and I never unplug and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's exactly what you said when you feel, when everything feels scattered and, you know, you're kind of always in triage mode, always just trying to make it to the next day. You can't look at your calendar and say, you know, this is the month I'm going to do it. That seems so unrealistic, right? Like the idea that I could look at my calendar and say, I'm going to have room to go to Costa Rica in January. I'm trying to make it to tomorrow, right? And so I think what you described is accurate. But I also just from someone who is in that in that position, like really in it, I feel it, right? Like I, it feels 
very real. And it feels like what you're describing of calendaring out when you're going to have, you know, time off and sort of that, that does that, that kind of design of your, of how your life is going to go, that almost seems like a fantasy. It sounds awesome. But I think for a lot of our listeners out there, they might have just heard what you said and said, yeah, fat chance, lady. I'm going to look at my calendar and say, oh, in February, I'm going to do, I'm going to have this lovely vacation. But I think it's exactly what you said, that it's a cultural shift of understanding why you're not doing yourself any favors by not being able to do that. Well, that's why your boss has to sit you down in January. That's what I do with my staff, too. Like, it's personal, sure. And especially in our freelancer hustle, side hustle type culture that we operate in, it's tough because we're our own boss in a lot of ways. But, you know, it's individual. It's systemic in terms of an organization. And there are things that our government can do. Let's let's be real. Let's get on that policy soapbox for a second because America can be better on this. Like there are models of other countries that have clearly made progress on this. And Bridget, that's what I want to talk about when we come back from this next quick break. So hang on. We want to hear all that New America has to share about what other countries have figured this out and how we in the United States can Get on board with a better life. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. And we're back. And Bridget Todd was just making her plans to head to Costa Rica on vacation, y'all. So stay tuned for news on that front. But in the meantime, we're here with Bridget Schulte, author director of the New America's Better Life Lab. Let's talk about Uncle Sam, shall we? Like, we know that individuals, we got to get out of the martyrdom mindset. We know that organizations have to make changes in how they're acting to start believing in this concept of sustainability being good for business. What on earth is government's role in making this easier on all of us? Well, you know, honestly, a country or a society, they signal what's important in the policies that they hold. And policies, you know, one of the things we work on at the Better Life Lab is not only policy, we do original research and data and storytelling, but we're really all about culture change. And so it's sort of a chicken or egg. What comes first is the culture change and then the policy changes. But there's a lot of really good evidence from other countries that when you change a policy, then the culture changes. So we're trying to press on both of those level, levers, you know, so there's, there's a lot that the, that the government could do. Um, you know, for instance, in some countries, they have flexibility, they call it a right to request in the UK. Um, you, as a, as a worker, you have the right to request a flexible schedule and a, and a, uh, your manager, your boss can only turn you down if they can make a business case about why it would hurt the business. Wow. So that's certainly something that we could do, you know. Um, businesses may not like that. Well, then I would say then then jump ahead of the curve and make flexibility the default in your business. And don't wait for the government to be involved. You know, go ahead and, and lead on that one. Um, you know, the, there's plenty of other things that we could do to understand and to reflect the fact that the workplaces today are still set up to accommodate the um, the male worker of the 1950s. You know, it, the, the workplace today does not uh, does really does not mesh or, or there's such a huge disconnect between the way people really live their lives and what they're expected to do at work. 
So we could have things where the only advanced economy with no paid family leave policy, family medical leave policy, we're the only advanced country that does not have a paid vacation days policy. Um, and, we, uh, and our labor laws were actually, they haven't been updated in 75 years. Uh, the, Fair Labor, the Fair Labor Standards Act was, uh, we were leading the world back in the 1930s when we came up with the 40-hour work week and the minimum wage. And at the time, there was discussion that we should also have a national two-week vacation policy. Um, but then, they, you know, unfortunately, they started out with three things. And in the, the way that compromise works, they, <laughs> they got rid of two. They got rid of one and they left us with two. So maybe they should have started with five things and then we would have ended up with a paid vacation pay policy. But we didn't. Um, but, you know, one of the things that that has done is that it, it limited overtime hours for hourly workers. That it said, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act says if you work over a certain number of hours, 40 hours, you know, if you're an hourly worker, then you get time and a half. Well, that didn't happen with knowledge workers if you were a salaried worker. So literally, uh, you know, and at the time in the 30s, there weren't as many salaried workers as hourly workers. And now we've got so many knowledge workers that literally by law, you can work people to death and it's perfectly legal, uh, you know, if you're a salaried worker. So it's time to really rethink our labor laws uh, and really think about them as investments in human capital, which is really what our workforce is. Um, so, yes, paid family leave, um, high-quality, affordable, subsidized child care. You know, it's it's astounding. Yeah, let's, let's talk more about those two things. Because, first of all, you just released a new report from New America that asked the question, how much paid family leave is enough? And I think that's something a lot of businesses and our government is wrestling with. What did you all find? Well, so what we did is we reviewed more than 150 uh, academic studies uh, uh, from the United States and around the world, and uh, we read many more, but we only we only kept the most rigorous, uh, rigorously designed ones. And we had the same question: Well, you know, where did the 12 weeks of family med- unpaid Family Medical Leave Act come from? At the time, the Trump administration was talking about a six-week at first paid maternity leave. And then now it's a paid parental leave policy that they've been talking about. Where did that come from? Um, you know, why do you get six weeks or eight weeks of disability pay after you've had uh, after childbirth? You know, where did these times come from? And are they, you know, what kind of time should we be looking at? Uh, and so what was really interesting, we looked at four different outcomes. We looked at infant and child health and wellness, maternal health and wellness, gender equality and economic impact, the business impact. And we came up with four really four different recommendations, and the data is really clear when you look at infant mortality or SIDS, SIDS rates. I mean, in the United States, we have a really high infant mortality rate. We have one of the highest SIDS death rates of any country, not just advanced economies, any country. We have one of the highest maternal mortality rates, even higher than, you know, places of, of recent conflict like Bosnia and Kazakhstan. So we're not doing so great on the health front, and those are huge costs. And so what we've found is the data is really clear to really reduce infant mortality and have an impact on SIDS and uh, really set a child up for for healthy development. Uh, our recommendation is one year split between parents. And I think the data, it's, it's really clear the data supports that. Um, when you look at maternal health and wellness, um, where the six to eight weeks came from that was set back in the 1970s, what people don't realize is that 
until the Pregnancy Discrimination Act passed in the 1970s, there was no <laughs> that made pregnancy a disability, you know, so that then you could cut you if your state had a temporary disability insurance fund or you your your company had a private disability insurance then you could qualify for a disability under pregnancy. So that did not happen until the 1970s. And that, those were just the, you know, some some insurance person somewhere just said, I don't know, six weeks. Yeah, okay, that sounds good. Wow. Uh, but what we found is that the the data really is clear that a majority of women are still experiencing at least one symptom of childbirth at six months, you know, whether it's dizziness, uh, nausea, fatigue, urinary incontinence, that your body is still really not healed. So we say a minimum of six months for ensuring um, good maternal outcomes. And there's great data that shows how that has not only huge physical impacts, but mental health impacts that reduces maternal depression. And that lasts over a lifetime. We found really interesting longitudinal research out of uh, Europe that showed even 30 years later, if you had had a, you know, if you had had a decent amount of time to recover from childbirth, that protective effect lasted for decades. Wow. Um, when it, when it came to gender equality, the data was not as clear about how long a leap should be, but it was really clear that when you made space for men to take leave, solo parental leave, that it had a huge impact on relationship quality, on gender equality within the relationship. Um, it had a big impact on child development and the bonds between children and their fathers. Uh, so we didn't have like a particular duration, you know, like it should be X number of days or weeks or months, but we did say equal bonding leave between men and women. Yeah. Uh, the, the the data is so so clear that, that that makes a huge difference. Right when you're you know when a child comes into a family, you you know all of your family dynamics are just thrown up into the air, and so that's a perfect time to set a really different dynamic where where you really share care and you share your lives together. The last one that we looked at was economic impact. And uh, again, what's really clear is that it's if you think about um, you think about it like a bell curve, like if if a leave is too short, women tend to leave the workplace. But if a leave is too long, they tend to not be able to come back to work or back at the same level. We look, looked at places in like the Czech Republic uh, where you could you could be gone. You could be out for three years on uh, with some kind of pay under different schemes per child. Um, and it was very difficult then for women to get back into the workplace. So there's a sweet spot between, uh, you know, like nine months to, to a year for, uh, um, uh, that if a, if a, if a woman has that long, that kind of sufficient duration of a, of a paid leave, they will come back into the workplace and they're actually ready and they're, um, they're, there's kind of real performance and productivity benefit to that. Yes. So one of the chapters you dive into in your book is about how the Republican Party almost passed an affordable child care reform bill. Uh, so what happened with that? And do you ever think we'll get close to having something like that again in this country? Well, and it wasn't just Republicans. It was actually a bipartisan uh, uh, bill and a bipartisan effort. It was bipartisan. a really fascinating time. It was the early 19th. 19- what is that? It was bipartisan. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. I haven't yeah, seen that in a while. when Republicans and Right. Republicans and Democrats were not mortal enemies. Yeah, they were actually <laughs> worked together for the benefit of the people, uh, which is what you would hope a democracy is all about. But uh, in the early 1970s, uh, there was a couple things that were happening that were really interesting. 
And one was that they were just beginning to do more brain studies. You know, before then, they thought that babies were just sort of like these blobs and it didn't really matter what you did to babies. You could leave them in a drawer or put them in a playpen. And they were just beginning to understand just how critical this time was for really setting architecture of their brains and, uh, you know, setting the, the stage for all future development. And so there was, so at the time, President Richard Nixon got very interested in that and said, you know, we really need to make sure that all children uh, have the best start in life. And at the same time, this is right when women started entering the workforce in mass, in part because the women's movement had opened up more uh, jobs that had been traditionally masculine jobs. It had opened up more opportunity for women. But also at the same time, there were more and more working class women who went to work because the sort of the, the family wage, quote unquote, if you will, had started to stagnate and families just couldn't make it on one salary anymore. And so it was really an economic necessity that a lot of women entered the workforce, uh, you know, just to keep their, their standard of living the same. And so the, there were polls that said, hey, more and more women are in the workplace. Um, wouldn't it be a great idea? You know, should we help? Should we help them with child care? And majorities of Republicans and Democrats came back and said, yes, the government should actually play a role in this. So there was a huge bill that actually had bipartisan support. Uh, the Nixon administra administration, the, they were working behind the scenes to craft the bill. They had a big coalition, uh, and they actually it passed both House and Senate, and it made it to the White House. And it would re it would have uh, called for uh, high quality, easily accessible child care, easily affordable. It was supposed to be on a sliding scale. There'd be high standards. There would be good pay. Um, you know, it was uh, basically child care on every corner. Um, and it got to the White House. And at the time, uh, there, this was just at the beginning of the rise of the kind of the far right wing of the Republican Party. Um, and Pat Buchanan, who was sort of the, in the vanguard, um, he was working in the White House at the time for uh, Richard Nixon. He was a speechwriter. And I went and interviewed him for my book. And, I, and he said, I saw that bill coming. And for him, that, that felt like the end of America. And he said, you know, uh, what makes America great is its families and family is mom is home when the kids come home from school with, you know, waiting for them with kick and pie. And I just looked at it and I said, well, you know, a majority of mothers in this country work, you know, they work outside the home for pay. Um, and it, that didn't, that didn't seem to register with them. And he said, well, go ahead and work, but I'm, you know, don't make me, don't make me pay for Johnny or Jim, you know, Jimmy or whatever. Um, uh, so he, Pat Buchanan convinced Richard Nixon to veto that bill. And Pat Buchanan had just come back from a trip to the Soviet Union at the time. Um, and this was at the height of the Cold War. He saw all these little kids and he's, you know, in these kind of quote unquote Soviet daycares. And he became terrified that, that's what that's what childcare was. That we would send all of our American children, like rip them out of the mother's arms and rip them out of the house and send them off to these little factories and make them, you know, march around and I don't know, spout Leninist doctrine or that's something. That's such that's and, such nonsense. Yeah, thanks a lot, Pat. Like really, really blowing up our spot here by like you know, branding this idea of affordable national child care as indoctrination, like Russian indoctrination of our kids. That's not at all what it was going to be. Well, that's exactly how he painted it. And he stirred up the conservative base, you know, the info wars of the time, the conservative colonists, and they, uh, they really scared people. 
And Nixon decided to veto the bill and he let Pat Buchanan write the veto message. And when I talked to Pat Buchanan, he said, we not only wanted to kill the bill, but we wanted to kill the very idea of child care in the United States. Well, he's been pretty successful in that endeavor, hasn't he? And what's that pro-family, like killing child care? Well, right, because of family values to, to Pat Buchanan meant men go to work and women stay home. So I guess what I would say to that is, you know, that's just not the reality that we live in anymore. Wages have stagnated since the 1970s. So if you want to still have the same standard of living, you know, you do need two earners. And if you don't want two earners, well, then you need to do something about wages. Right. <laughs> um, because, you know, that, that's beyond uh, a family's ability uh, to control. Um, and the other thing is, I guess I would argue, you know what, if you make flexible work the default, then somebody could be home, you know, at least sometimes for cake and pie at three in the afternoon. So I guess my argument is, can't we get to that same spot where we really value family time, where we really value, um, you know, the time that we that we have, you know, with others that we love? Can we get there in a way that doesn't require like half the workforce to stay home and and not be able to, uh, you know, uh, contribute to in the public sphere and add our knowledge and ideas to the economy? Yeah. You know, can we or can we figure out how to change workplaces such that, you know, if you do want to take out a, a, a few years for whatever reason, it's not so difficult to get back in and get back on a career track. You know, can we figure out how to change the way we work and our workforce culture to really match what people really want in the way we live our lives? Can we figure out how to do good, excellent work and still have time for all of the all of the things that make life worth living? And I think we can. There are other people who've done it. We just have to start. So, Bridget, let, I'm a U.S. voter and I'm pissed off about this issue. What can I do? How do I make this happen? Got to talk about it. You know, um, make sure that your lawmakers know that this is something that you care about. Have your voice heard. Do they have a plan? Do they have a position on it? You know, a lot of times these these issues don't rise to the top because people sort of feel hopeless. Oh, childcare would be so expensive. It's such a big deal. We can't do it. Well, you know what? We're never going to figure out how to do it if we don't start asking, if we don't start making noise. So if I'm a voter, find, uh, you know, first and foremost, find candidates who support your views and are, you know, and will make these, you know, are, and are committed to finding answers and solutions, vote for them, get out there, you know, go knock on doors, donate money, you know, make this, use the system, make the system work. And then, you know, if your candidate has not, uh, you know, maybe it's not your, your ideal candidate, well, get out there and make sure that, you know, you're a constituent, your, your voice heard, right. Write to your member of Congress, um, you know, start locally. There, there can be local solutions that then can be scaled. Let people know about it. Make noise. You don't don't just sort of suffer in silence because there's a lot of pain out there. And what I found when I was writing my book is I thought that I was completely alone and that everybody else was fine. And it was really only in writing the book that I realized everybody's not fine and we're all in pain. It's just that nobody believes that things can change so that there's been a real hopelessness and sort of like, oh, what, what use is it? Uh, why bother talking about it? And we need to start talking about it and keep talking about it. And that's a lot of what we're doing here at the Better Life Lab. 
We just, we've got our new media uh, partnership with Slate. We've got the Better Life Lab channel on Slate. And that's part of our, our goal is to just have a steady stream of high quality stories and data and essays to just completely keep hammering this issue that our world needs to change and it's not impossible and let's get together and do this. And we are so grateful for your work and your leadership on that front. Obviously, the last time you and I sat down, Bridget, we were talking about a very different perspective future pre-election 2016. And I think all the things you just mentioned of making your voice heard, writing letters to your uh, elected officials knocking doors, making phone calls are clearly f- things that we didn't do enough of this past go round, or at least the electoral college really screwed us on that front. The leadership of New America in giving us and arming us with the tools to make our voices heard cannot be understated. And campaigns and coalitions that have been coming together around this, like the Make It Work campaign, I thought was a really interesting um, leader in the space of advocating for family solutions or work-life solutions that would benefit all of us, including single, childless, unmarried women like Bridget and I here, um, that I would love to see us all pounding the pavement a lot more, whether it's on the state level and the local level or on the federal level moving forward. So, where can our listeners catch up with you, Bridget Tulte, and follow the great work that you're leading at the Better Life Lab? Well, that would be awesome because part of what we are really trying to do is network with other people, like-minded people. And, you know, by banding together, we're all stronger. So we are all about making connections and um, people can find us on the web where we've got a lot of tools uh, uh um, at the New America website, you can look for the Better Life Lab. We've got a newsletter that comes out where we amplify not only our work, but other partner organizations and researchers and writers who are doing really great work trying to move the needle. Um, because, again, we believe in amplifying other voices in, in addition to ours, that we're all stronger um, when we all come together. Um, so uh, we also, you know, we're on social media. We've got a really uh, cool new project called Mission Visible, where we've curated a list of uh, fantastic um, kind of a, a list of experts who are women and people of uh, people of color. And so every time there's an all male panel, we've actually got resources. It's like no excuse. Come to Mission Visible and find your find find a diverse experts. So we're really trying to look for practical solutions as well. So there's Mission Visible out there. Um, you know, we have events. Um, I do a lot of speaking. And um, we now have the Better Life Lab channel on Slate. So come there and read our stories and, um, you know, help us spread the word. Yeah. Uh, the, the, world needs, the world needs to change. Absolutely. And if you haven't already, pick up your copy of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time, Bridget's fantastic book. Clearly, you have such expertise on this subject matter. We could talk with you all day about it. So if you want more historical context, political context, and a vivid picture of how we can get out of this overwhelmed culture, make sure to pick up Bridget's awesome book. Smitty listeners, we want to hear from you. What does this mean to you? What would it look like to have an organization and a government that is bought in on work-life balance, that is aware of role conflict and how much it's hampering us all from achieving our full potential? 
make sure to get in touch with us at Mom Stuff Podcast on Twitter. Show us what role overload looks like for you on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as always, we love getting your listener mail at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. 